as we sang about the work of the devil against the church, so also we'll be reading about that in Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, which you can find on page 553 of your pew Bible. Up to this point, we've just had Nehemiah come back from rebuking his Jewish brethren for selling their fellow Jews into slavery. And he has begun to provide for them. Now, chapter 6, we read, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall, that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elo, in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. 
Tobias sent letters to frighten me so far. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today you see here in front of you three men who are going to commit themselves to the work of the Lord in a special way. The task that they are about to embark on has the potential to be very daunting. They'll be giving up time with their wives and children in the evenings to be involved with kingdom work in a very unique way. They'll be guiding people, giving them advice, discipling them, and nurturing them. Above all, they'll be directing them to turn their eyes to the Lord. Now, in their time in office, elders and deacons tend to be subject to particular attacks of the devil. There is nothing more than he, that he would like to see than someone who is in a leadership position among God's people falling. But they can take courage in this, that despite the efforts of the evil one, you can take comfort in the words of God that we find in the letter of James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Keep him in your sights, and you will see the very same truth that Nehemiah comes to see in his time as leader of God's people. That although men spurred on by the devil may plot to overthrow the people of God, their plans come to nothing. They may seem to be winning for a time, but at the end of the day, the work of God overcomes the craftiness of those who are tools in the devil's hands. And so I bring you the word of God as summarized under the following theme. The work of God overcomes the craftiness of this world. And the work of God overcomes the craftiness of this world. And we'll see a blatant distraction, an open letter, a false prophecy, and finally a stunning conclusion. Having tried to attack the nation from outside and within, as well as having tried to tear them apart through debt, the devil now decides to take a different track with the people of God. Instead of getting the people as a whole to give up, Satan decides to change his focus. He decides to go for one man, Nehemiah. After all, if you can cut off the head of a movement, theoretically the rest should die, right? To begin with, Nehemiah is first faced with a conspiracy to murder him. In the name of peace, the people who first have threatened to kill the people of God now pretend that they want to meet and talk. They invite Nehemiah out among the villages of the plains of Ono. Now, it's not mentioned, this place isn't mentioned in too many other places in the Bible. You'll find passing references to it in Ezra and Nehemiah, but we find from the Talmud that this village was actually a place that was quite remote. It was on the borderlands of Judah. Now, unsurprisingly, Nehemiah finds this very suspicious. He's taken to heart the words of Proverbs 14, verse 15. The simple believes every word, but the prudent considers well his steps. And so he responds to them. I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I go out to you? We need not read any pride into the statement, I'm doing a great work. As it can also be translated, I'm working on a big project. He's saying to them that his priorities don't allow him to go down there. 
God's work needs to be completed, and he won't let people who are in league with God's enemies distract him from it. Now, brothers and sisters, you'll find the same true for yourself. Throughout your lives, all kinds of distractions will arise to try tempt you away from God's work. You can get so involved in events and projects and even good causes that you might lose sight of what's important. This happens also for those who are in leadership positions. You'll find people who... You'll, you'll find you're facing with people who are struggling with sin and who might end up distracting from the bigger issues. Others can try attack, character, or motivations. Now, we need to move away from these kinds of focuses, whether it's in a position of someone who is in the office of leadership, or it's in the position of a brother or sister in Christ who is moving to face someone who is struggling. We need to move away from these things and move back to the word of God, to have that as the central focus, to bring those we speak with back to the word of God, not to be distracted from the word of God, but to let the work and the word of God be our motivation for every aspect of life. Because as we find Christ himself speaking, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added onto you. Now, having failed in their first attempt to distract Nehemiah from the work of God, these men who are instruments of the devil try again. This time, the devil tries to overcome the work of God with twisting words. Four times, the accomplices of Geshem the Arab have tried to persuade Nehemiah with Nice words, to come to a meeting with them in the plains of Ono. But he refused to be tricked. Now, having realized that he has seen through their schemes, they become frustrated and angry, and so they write an open letter. Now, today, what we think of an open letter is different from what they saw one as being in the past. Today, we think an open letter is something that someone writes and then maybe posts on a news website or writes on a Facebook wall and then also sends to that particular person. But an open letter back in the day was somewhat different from what they have here. Back in the ancient Near East, diplomatic letters would be sent in a silk bag that's tied up and that's sealed with a wax seal. Now, an open letter was one which was given to the messenger to pass on without any seal attached. Any curious person could stop the messenger and ask him what the message is that he's holding in his bag, and he would be also able to speak about it because he himself is now freed because there's no seal. And so the idea was that rumors would be spread wherever the messenger went, the fact that an open letter was sent by Sanballat would be seen as a gross insult to Nehemiah, especially considering his position as office 
of the governor of Judah and his position as former cupbearer to the king. What's even more insulting is the content of the letter. We read, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem the Arab says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you're building a wall. You're building a wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there's a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, the king being King Artaxerxes. These matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, let us consult together. Now the reason that this letter was so damaging was because of the fact that there was some measure of truth in what the people were saying. And when people hear some measure of the truth, then the worst case scenario with regards to that truth begins to spread. Now, what do I mean by some measure of truth with regards to this? Well, for one, of course, the obvious fact that they're building a wall. But think about for a moment, take a step back and think about the prophecies that were busy floating around at this point in time. Many of them were messianic, pointing to a coming king. Think of Zechariah, for example. His prophe- he and his prophecies were only a few decades before Nehemiah's coming, and so they would still be floating around. He prophesies in Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, was this a declaration of Nehemiah's kingship? Obviously, the answer to that question is no. The people who would be hearing these would recognize that the answer to that question is no. The devil, who is behind this work, would recognize that the answer to that question is no. But that is the nature of the devil's work, isn't it? Even from the beginning, he takes God's words and twists them to his own benefit. Think of what he said in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say to you, that you can't eat from the tree? Satan is twisting God's words here as well, twisting the words of God to try benefit himself. And just like in the garden, he does this in such a way that those who are looking in from the outside would think that the enemy of God seems to be trying to help. It looks like if you were to look at Genesis 3, from an outside perspective and not know the motivations of the devil that he's trying to help. God's just trying to hold you back. Again, here with this letter that's being written, it looks like they're trying to help. Come, let's consult together. We want to help you through this issue. There's a rumor which, incidentally, we started with our open letter that's going to reach the ears of our king. Let's have a meeting together so that we can come help you. Nehemiah recognizes that these men are the sort that are spoken of in Psalm 28, verse 3. Such men who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. And so he responds, 
no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. He sees that they are trying to weaken the people of God through fear because if the people know that there's potential for King Artaxerxes to come with all his armies and crush them, then they'll stop from the work. He sees that they're trying to weaken them. And so instead, he sends up a prayer to God. He recognizes how precarious his own situation is right now. And so he says, Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. He asks that this time, this time of testing can be one that actually brings them out stronger. Nehemiah knows that there will be those who speak evil of the people of God. And sometimes this is our only recourse. Sometimes our only recourse is to send up that prayer, now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. To leave the outcome in the hands of God and to simply and quietly walk in our obedience to him. Finally, having failed to distract Nehemiah from God's work, and having failed to undermine God's work by twisting his word, the people opposing Nehemiah decide to try something even more subtle. They try to undermine Nehemiah's integrity and to undermine the trust that he has in the very God who commissioned him to begin this kingdom-building work. We read that the final attack on Nehemiah himself comes from the very inner circle of Nehemiah's trust, one of the prophets. This one man who should have been so close to God that he chose to stand against God in this way should bring us sorrow. Because it makes us aware that even those who are in positions of trust can fall under the sway of sin. It gives us extra reason to pray for those who are in those positions. That God would guide them. That God would guard them and keep them close to him in their walk. And it gives those of us who are in those positions, extra reason to keep guard, to keep watch, and to pray to God that he would guide and guard them. In verse 12, we see that this man was given money by Tobiah and Sanballat to try to deceive Nehemiah. Now, whether he was so easily swayed to betray Nehemiah because of the great poverty that we read about in the chapter before, or simply because of greed, we aren't told. All we're told about is this betrayal, this betrayal of trust, a betrayal that is ultimately a betrayal of God. We read that Shemaiah was a secret informer, now, the word that's translated here as secret informer in the NKJV would actually be better translated as someone who is shut up. It seems it, that Nehemiah was confined to his house for some reason, likely due to uncleanness or illegal impurity that kept him from taking part in the temple service. Now, being in this state, he says to Nehemiah, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. And let's close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night, they will come to kill you. 
He's saying, I've received the prophecy, Nehemiah. I've received the prophecy from God that you are going to die. And God has told me that the only way to save yourself is to lock yourself up in the temple. And it seems like Shemaiah was not alone in his actions. We can see in verse 14 that Tobiah and Sanballat had managed to corrupt Noadiah the prophetess and other prophets as well, all with the intention of making Nehemiah deathly afraid. Taking a step back from what he's saying for a moment, imagine the consequences of this act. Not only would Nehemiah be running and hiding, leaving his men exposed outside. But he would be shutting out the priests from carrying out their duties. Keeping this in mind, as well as other things, he responds, should such a man as I flee? But it's neither the consequences nor his own safety that govern Nehemiah's decision-making at the end of the day. He says, and who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And we read, then I perceived that God had not sent him at all. He is not only refusing to enter into the temple because of his position as a leader of the people and what that would mean for the people who are looking to him for leadership, for guidance, but he's refusing to enter the temple because of who he is and the knowledge of who could enter the temple. And he does this because he is comparing the statements of man with the word of God. Now we read of something similar happening in the New Testament. When the Apostle Paul was bringing the good news of the gospel to the Bereans, they were measuring it up when they were listening to him, measuring it up against what they had studied in the gospel. They urgently dove into the scriptures, testing all that he said in order to see if it was true. But while they found the Apostle Paul to be speaking the truth, in Nehemiah's case, we can read that the conclusion that was drawn is that the prophet was speaking falsehood, comparing the words that were spoken with Scripture. Why? God was very clear regarding who could and who could not enter the temple. He commands Aaron the leader of the priesthood in Numbers 18, verse 7, I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. God was holy. And so the building in which he allowed his presence to remain in a special way could only be entered by those whom he chose as priests and Levites. Anyone else was considered to be unholy, not set apart for service to the Lord in a special way, and therefore they were forbidden from entering into the presence of God. Now the devil was trying to use someone who was supposed to be bringing the word of God. He was twisting the bringer of the word of God to pervert the commands of God. This is not a new trick, but a very old one of the devil, and one he brings back time and time again. How greatly this highlights for us the importance of spending time in the Word of God so that we can become more and more aware of the tricks of the devil and that we can become more and more aware of the commands and the promises of God. The people opposing Nehemiah tried to undermine his trust in God through this false prophecy. 
They tried to disgrace him in his actions, but they were unsuccessful. They were unsuccessful because he clung to his identity. Personal danger didn't faze him, while his position as governor certainly did make him influential enough to know that he could not hide without doing great harm to the kingdom of God. He was also working with the knowledge that if he did die, in the long run, his death was not what was ultimately important. His life was dispensable when it came to the important kingdom work of God. And he, therefore, would not let the chance for an evil report to undermine and to damage the work that he was doing because he was working for God's glory. He put his trust in God that what God was ultimately carrying out was for his glory, for the advancement of his kingdom. And that mattered more than anything else because he knew who God was. Now, despite the craftiness of the enemies of God, Nehemiah was able to pull through. Despite the devil doing his best to frustrate God's kingdom work, the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul. The speed that it was finished was all the more stunning, considering that Nehemiah's plans, to begin, uh, plans began in the month of Nisan in the spring, and now it's only the end of summer. What a great triumph this was in the midst of great attempts to distract. When the enemies heard of the triumph of the Jews and the nations around saw what had been accomplished, they were disheartened. Because they saw that they had it wrong from the start. First, they thought that they could scatter the people through threats and through violence. When that didn't work, they thought that if they killed Nehemiah, they would be cutting off the head of the movement and the rest would collapse. But with the speed and the success of the building, Despite all of their attempts to frustrate and destroy, they could only reach one conclusion. Nehemiah writes, they perceived that this work was done by our God. They finally realized what we have been reflecting on since the beginning of this sermon series. They finally realized that this is not a question of Nehemiah. This book is not one that's focused on how to be a Nehemiah, great leadership like Nehemiah. No, rather they finally realized that God had once again risen to the defense of the Jews. No longer were the Jews a reproach in his eyes or in the eyes of the nations around. No longer were they suffering the consequences of their sin. They were now clearly and visibly enjoying the fruits of repentance and the protection of their God. Now, realizing that they were standing against God, did the enemies give up? Did they turn around and join the people of God, submitting themselves to the rule of a God who is clearly more powerful than they? No, no, they did not. And somehow, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. It should bring us great sorrow, but it shouldn't come as a surprise. Think of when Jesus Christ himself proved that he was from God. In John 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. But the, prof the Pharisees plotted to kill him 
and to kill Lazarus again. Even when Christ was raised from the dead himself, the chief priests, they didn't question the events of the resurrection. They didn't even question the resurrection itself. You would think that this would be a chance for them to fall on their knees, crying out for forgiveness and turning to their only hope for salvation. But instead, they bribed the soldiers who had witnessed the resurrection to spread lies about what happened. They redoubled their efforts to persecute the people and extinguish the last remnants of Christ's followers. What could cause men to do this? What could cause men to continue to fight when they clearly recognize that they are fighting against God? We know the reason. We find the answer in Ephesians 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ultimately, the devil is behind it. The prince of darkness is driving it. Yes, Satan has been defeated in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, but he won't give up easily. He'll drive on those who fight in rebellion, those who have entrenched themselves against God. He will take advantage of their hatred for God, their hatred for his people, and he'll spur them on and they will persecute the people who stand for God. We can see that already taking place at the end of our passage here in Nehemiah 6. Yes, the Jews had a victory in getting the walls up, but at the end of Nehemiah 6, we read about how conspirators among the nobility, the elite, the rulers of Judah, have begun to align themselves with Tobiah, to speak well of him before Nehemiah in an attempt to pacify him to pacify Nehemiah and to betray his secrets to Tobiah. And all the while, Tobiah himself is sending threatening letters to Nehemiah, hoping to bring him down with fear. And the devil is behind it. Now, we can't necessarily conclude that all of these people who are nobility and rulers in Judah were absolutely corrupt to the heart. In fact, we realize from reading this they play a little bit of uh, family bingo here. They had pledged, many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Era, and the son of Jehohanan, who, uh, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam and the son of Berechiah. So there were family connections that were holding them together. And they say family, that uh, blood is thicker than water. Well, in the case where someone's deception isn't complete, it's not completely clear in the eyes of people, then they will continue to hold close to those who are family, to those who they are related to and who they're friends with. And Tobiah was appeasing them while at the same time behinding their, behind their backs sending these letters. But the devil will even take advantage of that. But there is hope. Just as we know the devil is working behind the scenes, we see God's hand at work, even behind that. And this should be a comfort to all of us. A comfort to all of us, especially to those of you brothers who are coming into the position of elder or deacon. Whatever we face, 
remember that God is ultimately in control and can even turn that. Even the worst attempts of the devil will only serve to further the kingdom of God. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And that even goes for those who are facing the terrors that the devil tries to visit on them. God is there. God is there. He has the big picture in hand. He has it under his control, despite the fact that we might necessarily, might not necessarily feel it. And while the devil may rage, while he may marshal his forces against heaven, the king of heaven laughs him to scorn. He is the one who is ultimately in control, and his love for his people is everlasting. As we read in Romans 8, verse 35 and following, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. We're accounted as people who can easily be taken advantage of and who can be destroyed. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The devil may rage, But the way of God is perfect. The promise of the Lord proves true. And even in difficult times, the Lord will, is and always will be a shield for all who take refuge in him. And the work of the Lord will overcome. Amen.